0: I see this at so many companies, they have a lot of engineers and they wonder why you know they have a lot of code but not a lot of product. Code is not an asset. So what did you do with the feature? We killed it. Did you tell them? Uh, I hope so. Deleting
1: code is amazing. It's it's like my favorite thing to do. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI.
0: I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly.
1: And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development.
0: You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at Cast.
1: The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. In this episode, we talk about the fear of shipping and whether code is an asset. So at the end of the last episode, Edith, you said, um, I think this was a quote from, from Yammer VP, uh, the organization you design is is the software you build.
0: Yeah, it was actually from the CTO Adam Pisoni, and it really struck home for me because I see this at so many companies. They have a lot of engineers, and they wonder why you know they have a lot of code but not a lot of product. Mm-hmm. And it ties back to what you just said of uh, specializing in the product management role. Right. I think th- this is a name. I think it's Conway's law, um, and
1: the 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 way that that, that I saw that expressed is, is that if you have uh, if you're building a compiler and you have four different teams that are building a compiler, you'll end up with a four-pass compiler.
0: <laughs> There's no one vision.
1: right. When looking at lots of different teams and team structures, the uh, the interesting one that, that I found was was the Heroku one. And they have uh, they have a language team and they have an add-ons team, and they have sort of sharp delineations in in their software and uh, or in in their in their stack that allows them, uh, to really focus on one particular area because there's such
0: sharp demarcations between the different areas of the product. Well, I think that's good if you're a fairly mature product. Mm-hmm. I think in the early days of Heroku that would not have worked at all. I think so th- th- they
1: had this. I wouldn't say it's quite from the early days, but I mean relative to now it was re- it was quite early. I think
0: they had that since cedar, which is which was around two thousand and ten. It just more meant when you're an early stage startup, mm-hmm. sometimes you change your entire product. well, okay, yes, yes. I mean I, Absolutely,
1: I, I think once you get into, uh, once you get past the, the first stage of the product, and you you if you're able to draw very good interfaces between how your customers understand what your product is.
0: I don't know. I mean, I've seen this go bad in so many organizations where you have entrenched engineering organizations that care more about staying on their current project, okay, than actually about where the market is going. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Um, We've always worked on this, so we need to stay here because we gotcha. don't know anything else. Versus being able to evolve to where the market is going. Right. This reminds me a little
1: bit of, of something that, that, that I'm working on at the moment. The the we, we brought in some some UX um, uh, experts to to look at our app and and to to help us you know sort of transform it into something that that, that was a little more uh, more usable and. Uh, and they they did a fantastic job and i uh, I spent this afternoon reading reading some of the reports but what 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 was difficult was was understanding where the product needed to be yeah so for us in particular the, the, there's not enough focus on the on the deployment there's a lot of focus on the build and and there, there isn't really uh, a sort of a broader look at you know what do engineers actually do when they're when they're trying to do continuous delivery and so we ended up with that what was in the product was redone in a in a really you know fantastic way, but there there wasn 't much uh, affordance made for you know here's the thing that actually needs to be in the product yeah. um and you, when you talk to customers that you know, it's hard for customers to tell you oh here's the thing that you actually need to be or you know they they, they look within the within the box you've drawn for them
0: yeah i, I, I say this cuz i had a similar evolution to you i actually i started off in engineering mm-hmm. and when i was in engineering it was very obvious what we should build next extremely obvious and so i was Thought that our product manager was an idiot for not seeing it as clearly okay. as me. When I became a product manager, I realized how myopic I had been as an engineer.
1: What, when you, can you give an example of, of what was the next thing to build that, oh, in the, retrospect, was wrong?
0: I, I would see all the little bug fixes that mm-hmm. we should be doing instead of the next big right. features. The right, next, right, or right. not even the next big features, but the next big product.
1: I, I think big or small is, is, or big picture versus small picture, is a good way to, to distinguish these two. Um, and I, I think that that it, it's very easy when you're talking about product management to to get the idea that a oh, product manager knows everything, and, and that the engineer is is just an implementer. Oh, right. Yeah. And and I think this is where a lot of the resistance to to product managers comes from within engineering organizations. That the the idea that they're going to be relegated to to mere kind of peasants in the uh, code monkeys. Code monkeys. They,
0: to, the, to use the, there we the, go. Oh. You know, nobody wants to be a code monkey. That right. doesn't sound very fun. Right. I would disagree with that, but I I, I think that's. Wait, 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 wait a second! We never disagree. So. <laughs> okay, okay. So the so, so this better be right, good. Right, right.
1: Um, it is very frustrating trying to understand everything, and on the other hand, it's very satisfying to ship things and to get your stuff in front of customers. So uh, very often, the the ability to to just be a code monkey for a certain period of time is is this sort of soothing. Feeling of just shipping software that fixes a load of small problems. I remember, I remember reading one of the one of the GitHub, one of the famous GitHub guys. I don't remember which one it was, but let's assume it was Kyle uh, Kneath or Neath or something. That wrote that he spends a lot of time on big projects, and in between the big projects, he needs to find you know what is the next big project to work on. And it's often very frustrating or very, uh, you, go down, you go down certain rabbit holes and whatever, and you end up kind of not shipping things or you end up getting frustrated or whatever. And what he likes to do then is, is just reach to the backlog and just take a bunch of small fixes. And he'll spend like two weeks of just like implementing very small things. You don't need to think about it. And it's cathartic and it, it lets you lets you ship. And so a couple of weeks as a code monkey, I think, is is a very useful thing to sort of you know refresh the head and, and, and that sort of thing.
0: I agree, but I I think nobody wants to do that full-time. And I'll also challenge something else you said, which is everybody wants to ship. I think there are a lot of people who find shipping terrifying, and they'd rather keep holding stuff on until it's perfecter and perfecter and perfecter. Like, I've certainly been in situations like this where it's like, oh,
1: we... Where we can't ship because it's it's not perfect yet or it's not complete.
0: Yeah, and as an engineer, you have this real battle of, well, what if people want this, or right. what if they want this, or this might be not quite right?
1: Yeah. The personal strategy that I that, that use to manage that is to try to write the blog post that you're going to launch this with, and to very often be like, oh, I can't launch this because it hasn't got this feature, it hasn't got this feature. And in the blog post, assuming that you're going to tell people, you know, how to use it, or, or you're writing the doc maybe, if, if not the blog post, you get that sort of feedback as you're trying to explain to a user how to do this you're going to say oh all you need to do is this and you'll realize that this is you know seven steps long instead of one step long
0: yeah the the amazon model so at amazon they actually start with writing the press release first
1: okay right
0: and everything's that's and that's a really good guide back right right right. you know because Um, because too often people do the other end of they've built this gargantuan thing yeah and they're trying to write a press release or blog post. And they're like, whoa right, right, there's, right we built all this stuff, but there's nothing actually to talk about.
1: right. And p- part of that and, and something which, which I think engineers uh, have, a, have a difficult time thinking about is how to, uh, is how to get this widely in use. So you can build the feature, but it's no use to having built it if no one uses it. Oh yeah. So you need you need to build the breadcrumbs to it. You need to you need to figure out the ways that, that are subtly hinted that this is the feature that you want when it's the feature that you want, and to draw people's attention to it. And sometimes that's putting it in docs, and sometimes that's doing a big announcement. But more often, it's trying to get the product in in, in a place where, where the, the UX naturally implies the the right path or the right um, direction for users to discover parts of the product.
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of responsive design, and I think even more, and this goes back to why I started LaunchDarkly, is you might have built it, but nobody might want to use it. Right. Like, you could have put all this effort into building it and done all these breadcrumbs that nobody follows. Right. So that's the idea, that if you actually start doing the breadcrumbs first and see if people start following that path.
1: So with, with LaunchDarkly, I'm guessing that, that that the way that you see whether someone is
0: using it is, is whether it's enabled for them. Is, is that right? Um, well, no, there's... so. What we do is we allow people to turn on features for certain users. Right, right. And just turning on a feature for a certain user doesn't necessarily mean that they start using it.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so do, do you tie this to like mix panel usage or some sort of analytics stuff?
0: Um, we could tie it to different backends. Like we okay. tie it to New Relic. We tie it to actually gotcha. optimize.ly So you could see if people are even. And we right. have our own internal analytics.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so so, so this is the thing for me that that I started a, a project recently, and the first thing I did is built the dashboards for for adoption. Um, And we're we're still at the stage in 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 the project where where there's no adoption, or you know there there, there's tiny amount of adoption amongst amongst the early users. A trickle. Uh, A a trickle and a trickle that you can't even see on the graphs. But it's it's (laughs) a thing. So it's more
0: like a fine mist.
1: A fine mist. but what you need to get to is you need to get to the place where where everyone is using this because if you just build it, they're not going to come. They need to be told about it. They need to understand how to use it. And getting those first customers to using it and where it's where it's deployed amongst them is it gives you incredible feedback about how one actually ships that software to the larger customer base.
0: Totally agree. I mean, this is classic lean principles of just making sure some people can use it well before rolling it out further.
1: We discovered a part of the product that exactly three customers were using.
0: <laughs> How did that make you feel?
1: Um, well, we didn't actually know it was a feature. So, uh, so this was the idea that you could do deployment in parallel. Oh. So at, at CircleCI, we paralyze your build. And so the idea is that basically we take your test suite and split it across 20 or 50 or whatever machines. But it turns out that that applied to deployment as well. Uh, and there were exactly three customers using that and one of them had a, a valid use case for it. Out of thousands of customers, exactly one valid use case was was there.
0: So, what did you do with the feature? We killed it. Did you tell them?
1: Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think we reached out to that. There was another way for them to do it.
0: Yeah, and then the, the painful part of product management is also when you have a feature that you like to kill, but that a a, a subset of power users lose. Like, so at Tripit. Um, we were a mobile travel itinerary, but we let people do a printout. Mm-hmm. And one one time, we're like, "Oh, nobody prints anymore. Let's just kill it." Okay. It turns out that people print, and they really, really like printouts.
1: Oh, uh, right, right. I understand that. Yeah.
0: Like there's like you know sometimes you're in a foreign, particularly if you're traveling to a foreign country. Yeah,
1: you're not gonna have internet, or your phone's gonna be dead, or.
0: Or you want to show something to a, a passport uh, guard.
1: Yeah, or a local. Yeah. Yeah. Without handing over your phone, like here's here's what I'm doing. Yeah.
0: So they were furious with us.
1: Right. Uh, so had you killed it at that stage?
0: Oh, we killed it. Like we oh. killed, like we were just like oh we didn't we, we didn't have good analytics on people printing cause, so, okay. So we just uh, said oh nobody's printing, let's kill it.
1: Oh wow wow. So
0: our analytics later was that people complained. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. Quite loudly.
1: And so, had you properly killed it at that point, or had you merely, you know, disabled it to see if it went away?
0: Uh, we let's see. We disabled it. I think we could get it back, but people were really, really upset.
1: Right, right. right. I, I like the the thing of shipping something turned off uh, rather than actually deleting the code. Even though it's 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 incredibly cathartic to delete the code and to to hide it and remove it, but the turning something off with a feature flag is just a lot better way to to sunset something.
0: Why do you think it's cathartic?
1: Oh, deleting code is amazing. It's it's like my favorite thing to do.
0: <laughs> it's uh. funny my my co-founder John, he was from xAtlassian, Atlassian. Yeah. And he said the winner of their hack competition was always the person who deleted the most code.
1: Right, right. right. Yeah. That, that that makes perfect sense
0: cuz that's what they wanted to reward is tidiness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean, it's it's very much related to the the idea of of you know, product management and, and validating things and making sure that that you don't build too much of the product when like, code is is not an asset. Code is well, actually, code is an asset in the in the financial sense of it. In that you think you want it, but you actually don't. You actually want the best performance with the least amount of code slash asset available.
0: Yeah, it's like um. So a f- a friend asked me once like should I pay my developers more if they write more lines of code? And I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> was like, no. <laughs> like, that's a really easy metric to game.
1: Right, so um, so we were talking about deleting uh, deleting features by feature flagging them. I, I think that this, this is a, an awesome way to delete a feature because it's very, very easy to get back. It's much easier to get back than a rollback. Rollbacks are, are this thing that nobody wants to do because they're, they're very, very painful, especially if a ton of code has come in between. So if you if you ship something or if you if you delete something by literally putting a feature flag in around it um, and then you ship the code and and then it's still on and you turn it off for a certain amount of people, see if anyone complains, see see that it still works and and that you know show it to ten people and then and then you delete it for everyone just by by flicking the flag and then if you get someone saying, you know, we really, really, really need printouts, uh, you can turn it back on for them while you have a think about what what you know how you really want to solve this problem.
0: Yeah, I mean I think feature flags is a really misleading term. Like so feature flags implies that it's always on or off when really Mm -hmm. it's more of a feature control. It's 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 a way to encapsulate a portion of functionality such that you have total control over it. Right, okay. From from the sunrise of it, Mm -hmm. you know, from launching it to certain people, seeing their reaction, getting analytics, and then all the way to the end, as you said, every feature eventually you want to kill. Mm.
1: So there's an interesting parallel here between between feature flags and the sort of configuration variables. So, by configuration variables, what I mean is, in a in a Rails app, you, you often have you know a set of four different environments. So you have you have dev, test, staging, and production. And uh, you often get in trouble in, in that you 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 fill your your code base full of you know if dev this or you know if if env is, is production then, yeah. then then do this because what you really want is you want to be able to say you know if we have enabled the um the the uh, X feature. Um, you know, if we're using SSL, is, is one example of a thing that might be on in some configurations, but but wouldn't be on in, in other ones. And in in the um, uh, in the closure ecosystem, there's this idea of a component, where you build your your application as a set of components, and all of the variables to components are passed into it. And the variables are essentially feature flags. Are things disabled? Are they are they enabled? What is the setting that that is built on it? And it, it makes it very easy to to compartmentalize functionality um, and to only expose like a simple interface that, that allows you control how the functionality works without necessarily having to dig into the functionality all the yeah, time.
0: That that's exactly uh, my vision for lunch Darkly. Oh. That everything should be controlled.
1: Right. It's... You should look into um, the closure idea of components. It's it's a very sort of a the, the closure people speak with in, in very sort of theoretical abstractions and that sort of thing and, and they, they use weird words um uh, like complecting yeah. uh, it's 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 a weird thing, but they, they they actually really know what they're talking about, which is which is even more annoying.
0: <laughs> That's always the worst right yeah,
1: so someone invents their own vocabulary and then they're right, and so you actually have to discover what they mean by this vocabulary, and then no one else understands the, vo- <laughs> the vocabulary but uh so complexing is an interesting word in this case it it means means unnecessarily tied together it means that it it's not it's not complex but it's it's two things that are like it, it's the opposite of simple basically <laughs> the,
0: the, the... the idea that you have
1: two components and they're like uh they they're they're two widely connected or connected. Yeah.
0: So what do you think is a better word than feature flag when really it's more about feature controlling or feature wrapping?
1: I used to feel that there were different concepts for feature flags versus A-B testing and that, that they were actually different concepts. And I, I'm now convinced that they're the same concept.
0: I think, so this is, this is interesting because I think A-B testing is just something that is enabled by having a wrapped feature
1: does say that to me again.
0: If you've wrapped all your features, mm-hmm. um, as I talked before, you can launch them, you can mm-hmm. monitor them, you can sunset them, and you can also compare them. Right, right, right.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so, so uh, an A/B test is really a feature flag which is enabled randomly uh, for a certain subset of customers, and you're you're looking at the analytics.
0: Yeah. So it's just it's just an extension of if, if everything is an object and a an nice a nicely an yeah. as you said. Uh, Wrap object, it's then you could say, oh, is this object doing better than this other object? Right, okay. The, the thing that, that I found
1: really weird in, in looking at how people talked about A B tests versus feature flags, and weird because those are the same concepts, but A B tests are a marketing thing or a growth thing. You, know, you tie them to business goals, or to KPIs, or to funnels, or something along those lines. And features, and especially you know, the kind of operational side of features, you tie to you know database latency and and basically operational metrics. But there's no difference between business and operational metrics. Every every ab test should be tied to operational metrics because it, it's no good knowing oh no one buys on this thing if the reason no one buys on it is because the exceptions are through the roof yeah I and mean, similarly there's no, there's there's no concept of you know th- th- this feature works really well if the database load is really low oh the database load is really low because no one is clicking down that <laughs> that, that path and, and your your um your business metrics are through the floor
0: you're absolutely right i think One of the goals of LaunchDarkly is to provide analytics on it and everything. I do think what I found when I was talking to customers is there's a lot of fear around A/B testing. Okay. Um, uh, Just the word I think has been overloaded. That people, I'll give Max, Max from Heroku, who sits Mm -hmm. downstairs from us. They love feature flagging. They feature flag everything. Okay. But he doesn't think of it as A/B testing. He's like, if you if you said, do I A/B test? He would say no because that implies that you're really Doing more of a test of an old versus a new and picking which one is better. But okay. really it's more he has a new feature and he wants to make sure the metrics are correct.
1: Right, okay. So the the I I when I would advocate for A-B tests in the past, it was mostly to say, you know, does this perform not worse than what was there before? So someone would have a new design of something and they they think it's great, and we'd all agree that it looked, you know, a lot better, but does it convert better? Or uh, in fact not not even does it convert better because if it looks better and it converts the same, we should definitely go with it. but does it convert not worse?
0: yeah, the issue is most people don't have the traffic for a b testing
1: at a small so you you, you can make a b tests work at a small scale
0: mm, and so if you're a saAS company with mm-hmm. maybe three hundred customers, right you don't have enough volume to do a b testing
1: um and you, you, could don't, be, you don't. You don't have to be quite profitable
0: no. and very happy with those three hundred customers that are each like hundred k a year.
1: So a-, a B testing is a test of statistical significance. Right. And, I, and, and, I, and at arguing, a small and I, scale, you need a lot of people, or to, to be able to tell small significance or or, or, or small differences in in uh, in the result, you know, five percent versus six percent. You need a large a yeah. large number of people to have any confidence in in the statistical yeah. significance. So if you have, but speech- you can tell the difference between you know, eighty percent of people get through your funnel and twenty percent of people get through funnel. your funnel with. With 50 customers.
0: I, well, so, so if you say, so that's if you have a feature that's used at the very top of the funnel. Yeah, if, yeah, if, yeah. So, what I was trying to say is if you have something that people might not see very often, it's yeah, very yeah, hard yeah. to A B test it. Yeah, and like, it's, it's, like it's also like very if you hard look to at get a funnel. Like right. you have your marketing site, which gets the most, you have your sign up, which gets yeah, the most. Yeah, yeah, and then the further yeah. down you get into product, the harder and right. harder it is to do A B and, test. And
1: especially if it's something where the uh, where you don't have a funnel necessarily, or, or where you have a funnel but you haven't constructed a funnel. So w- 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 one of the one of the one of the ways I think about software is, is that everything is a funnel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, life is a funnel. Right. Li- 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 life is a funnel. Um, so hiring is a funnel, and so your jobs page is part of a funnel, but you don't actually have a mixed panel thing built on your on your jobs page. And so making any change to your jobs page means that you don't actually know if it's had a positive effect or a negative effect. Uh, you, you can't really tell anything about it.
0: That's very true. I, um, but on the other hand, if you're getting only like, one person applying a month anyway, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's still, in the ra- that's still in the realm of statistical insignificance.
1: Right, so you have no controls over something goes out. You just have opinions. Yeah, Whereas so on, on, on the homepage, you can have data. And then on your, on your jobs page, you can, you can argue that you know, this word that we use here um, is really off-putting to female developers or, or you know, something along those lines. But, but if someone disagrees with you, you've got nothing to, to back up your arguments either way.
0: Well, actually, um, so a, a company, Textio, now is doing a lot of statistical analysis of job postings. Okay. to see if they have uh, if the words in them are gender neutral or not
1: and that that's based across like a massive corpus of job pages versus yep but it, it, it's not monitoring your your actual throughput or something like that
0: no it's just based yeah. on um, she's a machine learning PhD right and so, so that works for something
1: like you know gender or, or um, th- things that are you know diversity in in, in in the general case, but it's not going to work on. Uh, you know, are are all the closure developers? Do do they are they aware that this is a closure shop? As, yeah, an, as an example, and
0: that's why you can't A/B test life. If only. No, I mean that would be horrible. You'd have to do everything a thousand times. Right, 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 right. And what if some of those thousands were just terrible? Right. I mean, I mean but you can A/B
1: test web pages.
0: No, not if they don't get enough traffic. Not if they don't get enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes back to what you said. You can have. Um, Throughput or latency, right, right? You could you could test every page if you have a thousand years, right? But if you have a low traffic page, you just, sometimes to go back to what you said before. You just have to go with I feel this color is better. Right. I feel this color pops. And so
1: th- this is one of the most frustrating things about developing software that that everyone knows that you should have data and analytics, and it's just very difficult to really have any idea of whether you should have analytics for a particular thing. You, you know you should have it on your funnel. You know you should be measuring what what customers are using. But in almost every instance, you can make a justification for just doing it this way.
0: And you have to at a certain point. I mean, And, you, and, and that's yeah. what's frustrating. If, <laughs> if, if you
1: could uniquely say, in every situation, we're going to use data, we're going to use the funnel, we're going to use these analytics... Um, then, then you'd be in a great place. But where there are, you know, ninety percent of of your, your web page or your product actually don't get enough use to, to get any statistical significance, and then you end up with only having a funnel on your uh, on your sign up page, and and then you don't really have a very data driven company as a result of that.
0: Yeah, that's that's the hard truth. I mean, there's still a lot of art in the science. Like you just at some point you have to make a decision. Like I like unless the- you're at Google. I'm sorry? Unless you're at Google. Yeah, unless you unless you literally have the world's population using you. Right, right, right. You do have to make a decision. Like, I think our jobs page should look like this. Right. I think that our onboarding should look like this. Right. Why? Dunno. Other people did it that I way. I just kind of feel
1: it. <laughs> no. I think so it's that pops an American more. accent? No.
0: I thought you slipped from them and then no. No. uh
1: I, th- I think I think this, this color pops a little bit more. I think that's the that's what most arguments about UX end up with if you don't have high-level principles and goals and personas that, that you're building the product around.
0: That's fair. And I think it goes back to what you said before. There's always this tension of data mm-hmm. versus gut. And what we talked about engineers about making it perfect versus ship it now. Mm-hmm like and i think they go together like the more data you want you know the more you can be convinced that now is the time to ship versus the person who's like okay it's just time
1: right right yeah w- w- when i'm trying to ship something i try to i try to make sure that my fears are addressed more than i try to make sure that that the thing is feature perfect
0: that's a really good way to look at it
1: uh, so when when we so we ship this feature that, that I've been working on and it was just supposed to go to the first five customers so what I wanted to do is make sure that the back end was shipped and then I could test it on my own you know on our own project uh, and and validate you know does it actually work at all what does it look like when, when someone actually uses this in in production and the first thing that that I really need to validate is can I turn it on without causing any problems to everyone yeah. or, or to me and that meant that I had to Make sure that there was no problems to anyone. So basically, what I had to do with the feature was insulate it from so that if it went wrong in the way that in a you know, the thousand ways that I couldn't expect it to go wrong, that I knew for sure that it wouldn't affect the rest of the customers.
0: So, did you use a feature flag?
1: Uh, I mean, a feature flag, but also you know, the pro- the problem in a lot of languages is is it's not just a feature flag. You have to wrap the exceptions yeah. and make yeah. sure that that the exceptions get caught and just like end nicely and versus um. Versus going forward. So it, it was something that, that, that was on the critical path through everyone's build. So if the code went wrong, everyone's build could be affected. And so I just need to make sure no matter what goes wrong in this code base, let the builds continue. The builds must flow. The builds must flow. And so the, the, what I was addressing wasn't you know, how do we feature flag this off, it was just like can, can I ship this without being fearful of something going wrong?
0: I think you sum it up very well. Fearful.
1: Right. I mean, continuous delivery is, is mostly about fear more than anything, I think.
0: I, I think it's about mitigating fear, because it's very freeing that if you could turn something off at any time, right, you could move forward.
1: Right. And and if you ship something and you know that it's not going to break things?
0: You could ship it. Right. I think exactly. it's. I think it's when you have these big bang releases where it's everything all together in one kludge that you have yep. a lot of fear. Yeah. I had a customer who said they stopped doing continuous integration. Sorry. Right. Because it was faster to not. Okay. Um, so you know they were just sh- L- let
1: me just predict how this ended up.
0: <laughs> have you seen this have you seen this movie already?
1: <laughs> I've seen this movie so many times. <laughs> you saw <laughs> every iteration of this movie.
0: <laughs> every thousand. Yeah. How does how does the story end?
1: Oh, the the story ends with software not being able to be delivered. Engineers quitting is a is a good uh, or is a common ending or, or at least last chapter surprise that like oh we're shipping so fast no we can't ship anything because it's so frustrating to ship things because we we just don't know if it's going to work.
0: So how do you so that's the end of the story. What's, yeah. the, what's the next chapter?
1: After the end of the what's the sequel? What's the sequel? The sequel is they bring in a new VP of engineering. Uh, The VP of engineering says, What the hell? There's no testing. Uh, And the VP of engineering sets up testing. Everyone complains about testing and that that everything was much faster before testing, but they, they have to do what the VP of engineering says. And then in about a month, they realize their velocity is about 10 times faster than it used to be. And everyone who complained about testing is actually happy.
0: Yeah, that's what happened at our customer. They said they stopped doing testing because it seemed to take too much time. Right. They got to the point where they couldn't ship. And they're like, actually, this is the same as like, you know, basic housekeeping. Right. You know, you can't just not do your dishes every day for two months at time. Was there anyone
1: fired on this journey?
0: No, they came to a pretty quick realization. I, I, I think
1: they probably they probably got lucky there. <laughs> well, people uh, have been fired for less. Oh, really? Well, just if if you're in charge of a software team and you bring out something that that brings the team to a halt, yeah, maybe it'll occur to, to your boss that you actually didn't know what you were talking about in the first place.
0: I heard this legendary story that Salesforce they got to such a state that they could, it took them two years to ship anything. Wow! But they fixed it. Okay. They fixed it right because they realized this is a problem. It takes us two years to ship right. anything. Right. Yeah. Well, Paul, it was fun catching up with you about product management. And how to A/B test or not,
1: and whether A/B testing is the same as feature flags, it is.
0: Oh, Paul, we always agree, but not on this one. (laughs) I would say, all right, I would say that you can A/B test if you have feature flags, but I don't say you have to A/B test if you have feature flags. Um,
1: I think this is just language. I mean, A/B testing is. So the way that I look at feature flags, we have feature flags that sit in a bunch of different places. We have feature flags of, do I enable this on this machine? We have feature flags for, do I enable it for this customer? And then we have feature flags for, do we randomly enable this across the, across the customer base and what proportion do we use? And they're all some form of A-B testing. They're all some form of a feature flag, I don't see a, di- a distinction between them at all.
0: I think because in customers' minds, they think of A-B testing as some sort of statistical thing where they'll get a deterministic result, whereas sometimes they're using a feature flag just to roll out a new feature and expose it to some users.
1: Would you, would you classify it as an A-B test if it's statistical and not an A-B test if it's not statistical?
0: So, so Paul, I actually agree with you. To, oh, agree. I'm, just saying, I'm just saying I've talked to a lot of customers and when you say A-B testing, it puts a lot of fear into them that they have right, to. Right, right. So
1: I I agree that, that a lot of people see a distinction between, between A-B test and feature value. I think my point is this. I've come to the conclusion that there is no distinction.
0: I, I think we actually agree after all.
1: Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by HeavyBit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly.
0: To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.